So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, as we'll look this morning at the Christian virtue of submission. The Christian virtue of subordination, submission, service. You can pick your word, they're all synonyms. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read the paragraph that leads us up to verse 21, where we will be looking together. Paul starts in verse 18 and says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. As we continue studying the book of Ephesians, and by the way, I was a little bit shocked this morning when I transferred my notes over to my iPad to see that this is the 77th sermon in the book of Ephesians. And are you laughing with me or at me? Uh, and we're not, we're not even close. We're, we're just getting to the, the golden nuggets of, of, the, of the text. I'm so grateful uh, for Adam's Sunday School um, uh, lesson that he gave just a few minutes ago that talked about the importance of all of us, myself included, sitting underneath the, the studied exposition of Scripture. But it is interesting that almost every phrase in Ephesians just begs for a deep dive, for a scuba rather than a snorkel. But we're looking at this book, Ephesians in the New Testament, we once again find a shock to our natural systems in the verse before us, verse 21. It crushes our thinking. It reorients our living. We all know what it's like to dive into a pool or a lake that's breathtakingly cold, don't you? I grew up in Tennessee. We used to go hiking. It was a four-mile hike to Beach River, Beach Creek which there was a place called Beach Bottom. It had cliffs around this incredible pool that uh, you could uh, cliff jump, cliff dive into. Um, Sometimes, by the way, I'm just thankful that my mom didn't know. Anyway, um, we would jump in this. But the the water was spring-fed and just frigid. you You don't ease into that water. There's just one way to do it. You jump in. Now, on the opposite side, I, I was able to do baptisms in the King River up in Kings River up in um, Yosemite, and it s- s- melted snow. And uh, we were, we were, the people we were baptizing would come down, they would go, <gasps> take a deep breath. And then I had to wait for the dozen people getting baptized and stand there with my lips turning blue. It's a shock. Can I suggest that the section we're about to study in Ephesians from here until the end of the book is like diving into that cold water. It's refreshing. It's wonderful. You'll get used to it, but it's a shock. And it should be a shock because it's so counterintuitive. In fact, it's against our nature. In fact, if it's against our nature, it's super nature, all supernatural. And we need that supernatural input to be able to apply what's laid out ahead of us. Since chapter 4, verse 1, Paul has been pushing us into that cold and refreshing water of Christian living, helping us to adjust to this new disposition. 
It's a shock to our thinking. It's a shock to our behavior. It's a shock to our relationships. And if I can give you a little heads up on next week, gentlemen and ladies, it will be a shock to our marriages. In verse 21, Paul reveals to us that true Christianity, the Christian who really follows God's word, the Christian who loves the Lord, the Christian who is controlled by the Spirit, by the permanent abiding presence of God, transforms from a selfish human being into a servant. That's actually a softer translation, transitions into a slave, a slave to God and a slave to others. After three chapters of doctrinal instruction about our union with Christ through the gospel, our doctrinal fidelity with Jesus, Paul tells us that our lives now should be in line with what we believe. We should live out our, our confession, our profession. Look back for a moment to chapter 4, verse 1. This is the start of this whole section. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk, as we study, that means to live, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. If you're going to live as a Christian, if you're going to believe, if you're going to believe as a Christian, rather, you should live then as a Christian in response to that. Then what he says next is incredible. With all humility and gentleness, meekness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the security or the bond of peace. At the center of that practical admonition to live a life worthy of the gospel we believe is a phrase that guides our Christian living more than, more than perhaps any other phrase in the New Testament. It's pervasive. It's, it's everywhere. It's theologically contagious among all of the New Testament writers. What phrase is that? It's the phrase... One another. Look back at verse chapter 4, verse 1. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for who? For one another. The phrase one another appears in the New Testament over 100 times. About half of those one another's in the Bible verses relate to our interaction among the saints, among Christians, Christian to Christian, brother to sister, among the people who you're sitting with right here this morning. The word for one another in the Greek New Testament is alelon, workhorse. It means each other, one another. So I didn't want to go through all 70 plus attributions to this, but let me give you a little highlight. We're told to love one another. We're instructed to honor one another, to serve one another, to care for one another, pray for one another, bear with one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, stir up one another, Teach one another and many, 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 many more. 
The pervasive use of this phrase indicates that our Christian faith is fundamentally living a life that is that's others-centered, others-oriented. And then in our text before us, we are to simply, verse 21, 521, be subject to one another, be submissive to, be a servant to one another. Here's a simple principle. A Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, motivated by, influenced by, moved by the Holy Spirit of God, transforms into a servant, a slave to others, especially other believers. Here's the the key. One another in the New Testament really refers to people in the church. The one another's your in care groups with you, sitting beside you, know. Now, it certainly extends to the body of Christ universal all around the church, all around the world, but primarily it's your local church relationships. Interestingly, after washing the disciples' feet before the Last Supper, Jesus interrupts an argument among the men about who was the greatest or true leader. This is incredible. Just set this scene in your mind. A week and a half earlier, they were walking from Jericho up to Jerusalem in the final, for the final week of Jesus' life. As they're walking up, he overhears a discussion about who's the most important, who's the preeminent. They think he's going to go up to Jerusalem, establish the kingdom, set up his, his, his kingdom, kingly rule, and they will have seats of honor. So they're arguing about who gets to sit where, who's closest beside Jesus. James and John get their mom to go say, can my boy sit on the right and on the left, just beside you? That was right after he said, going up to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed and rise the third day. They say, okay, great. Am I better than John? If that wasn't enough, at the last supper, they continue the argument. He interrupts the argument and washes their feet. You know the story well, but remember the scene. The ancient Near Eastern hospitality table like this would have been a U-shaped table where the servants could come in the middle and serve the food. The table was a foot and a half to 20 inches high. They would recline on pillows and eat, leaning usually over on one elbow And their feet would be obviously in the business of their neighbor. And so it was important to wash your feet, wash the dust and the mud that had had collected on there. So something happened that night where they were obviously in a haste and no one had washed each other's feet. So Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garment, girds himself, and the Lord washes their feet. The most menial thing he could have done It's interesting, he gets to Peter, and Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me. And he says, then give me a whole bath. In responding to that, Luke records that Jesus said this to the men. Who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? 
Who's in the higher position, the one who's getting served or the one who's serving? And their obvious answer would be, well, the, the person in the highest position who's being served, right? In fact, he says that, is it not the one who reclines at the table? He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. I'm the Lord, I'm the master, I'm redefining my leadership by service. Ian Hamilton says it well. In the family of God, service, not status, is the mark of greatness. Service, not status. So at the core of this submission, this servanthood, and uh, being subservient, submitting, uh, being subjected to, uh, and serving are all synonyms of the same root. No one does that without the accompanying virtue and value of humility. Humility, looking at others as more important than yourself. Peter understood this well. He says, you younger men, 1 Peter 5, 5, you younger men, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. There's our word again. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourself with humility. What do clothes do? They protect you from the elements, but they're also a demonstration of your taste and your style. We all know that we wear clothes that identify us at some level. That's why Paul and Peter speak so much about a woman's modesty because it says something about your character. Well, what he's saying here is your clothing in your character is humility. That's, that's what you clothe yourself with. So the handle to grab this morning is this. Submission, and this will be important as we move into our study of wives submitting to husbands, so all of this definitional data will come back. Submission is not a cowering servitude reminiscent of 18th and 19th century American slavery. Submission is a character or temperament of gladly serving others to make their lives better. Gladly serving others so that their mere acquaintance with you makes their life better. We'll see that as we move along. Let's dive into the text. We'll find together, looking at the text, three applications for fulfilling mutual submission between Christians. That's an important phrase, mutual submissions. We're going to find out in the next section that wives are called to submit to their husbands, that children are called to submit their parents, that, that employees are called to submit to their employers, that we're all called to submit to the Lord. But here is interesting. We are called to submit mutually to each other, to one another. Mutual submission. Three applications for fulfilling, verse 21, the mutual submission between Christians. Now, for the first application, it's not in this verse. It's before the verse, and it's in verse 18. We have to recognize the reason for mutual submission. Why do we do this? Why would we submit mutually to one another? It goes back to verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine. Don't be influenced by an external substance because that's dissipation. That's a lack of self-control, but be filled with the Spirit. We study this in great detail. That word filled is plerao, which means to be, be moved along. It's like having a sail and the wind that moves the sail of a, of a ship is, is, is 
Plerao's filling it, it's influencing, it's moving. Be moved by, be influenced by, be controlled by the Spirit, not any external substance. So let's start with an undeniable reality. I'm going to admit this with you. Submission and service are not natural reflexes of a sinful heart. No person who is unredeemed gets up and says, oh, I can't wait today to serve everyone around me and to make their lives better than mine. That's unnatural, which is why why doing it is supernatural. Consequently, it's important to connect the be submissive in verse 18, excuse me, in verse 21, to being filled or moved by the Spirit in verse 21. The the reason that we would mutually submit to each other is because we're walking with the Lord. We're walking with the Spirit. We care about His influence in our lives. We care about His influence through us to the people around us. Again, what drives the last chapter and a half of Ephesians is that command to be controlled, to be filled, influenced by God's Spirit. Dependence upon the Spirit of God, empowerment by Him, function as the engine for our Christian existence. And as we've seen in the past few weeks, a walk with the Holy Spirit of God results in a demonstrable and observable way. You cannot have the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the sovereign king of all creation, permanently abiding with you, and that make no difference. It's impossible. So the first thing he does is say, This has consequences. He uses participles to describe this. We sing, we speak to each other, we're thankful. And the climax of that comes in verse 21, which is a hinge verse. We've talked about how Paul does this so often. What I mean by a hinge verse is verse 21 finishes the the thought that goes all the way back to verse 18. And it also introduces the new thought coming in the next verses. So much so that there's no verb in the next verse. Look at that for a moment. Verse 21, be subject, be submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. Literally, it says, wives to your own husbands. The New American Standard repeats the verb, be subject to your own husbands. There's no verb there in the Greek. It just borrows from verse 21, which shows you how tightly that is. It's introducing the next subject, but it's also the concluding participle of all the results of the filling of the Spirit at the beginning of verse 18. It's a hinge verse, which brings us to the command itself. Recognize the reason for mutual submission being filled with the Spirit. Secondly, obey the command for mutual submission. Be subject to one another, verse 21. This short little admonition, it's only 14 syllables in the English, is the final expression of the fullness of God's presence in His permanent abiding presence with us as the Spirit indwells and enables us. It climaxes the command to be filled with the Spirit and introduces the idea of Christian order in the home and in the workplace. Now, just for you... You grammar geeks who can have fun with me. In the original, this is the fourth participial clause, participial clause that explains the results of being filled with the Spirit. First, he says, speaking, 
to one another. Then second, singing songs and, and, and psalms, singing songs and psalms, verse 19. Then giving thanks for all things in verse 20. And now literally it's submitting, it's a participle, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. It means to be subject to or subordinated to. In fact, this word is, a, is, is an interesting word, hupotasso, underneath to place yourself, is a part of a word group that means to put yourself under another's leadership. Willingly place yourself under the influence or another in their leadership. I think it's interesting that submission in the New Testament is a voluntary act. It's something you willingly do, not something done to you. We'll see in the coming weeks that Paul says, wives, submit to your husband. He doesn't say, husbands, make sure your wives submit. It's a voluntary act of Christian service. It's ordering yourself under someone. Think about that. Ordering yourself under some, placing yourself willingly at their influence and their leadership, their service. Lana Windsor writes, submission is not something forced on you. It's about willingly yielding to another person within a rightly ordered relationship. Normally, the ordered relationship in question involves some kind of authority, but we need to remember that the nature of the authority depends on the circumstances and the relationship in human-to-human ordered relationships, authority is never absolute, but it's still real. Someone else has said this. This is, this is a stinger, okay? Here's the thing about submission, he says. It's not submission until you disagree. If you only ever submit to an authority that is telling you what you already want to do, you haven't submitted. You have retained your autonomy. You still are the final authority. End quote. Christian submission is almost always inconvenient. Christian submission is almost always costly and painful. But it's the function of our very existence. Jesus said in Matthew 16, If any man wishes to follow after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. It's fundamental to who we are. Said another way, Christianity strikes a lethal blow to our natural, inbred, in, onboard motive of individualism and independence. Biblical Christianity is the polar opposite of Selfishness is in polar opposition to selfishness. Paul said to the Romans in Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another, and there's our one another again, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another. Two one another's in the same verse. Give preference to each other. Philippians 2, listen to this, do nothing from selfishness. How about that for a command? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
What does that mean, Paul? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then this little dig. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus. Oh, okay, there it is. Do nothing from selfishness. Look, we're born selfish. If you don't believe it, just work in the three-year-old department one Sunday. Or have a three-year-old. And a five-year-old, and a six-year-old, and a seven-year-old, and an eight. Submitting to one another means actively serving others in their interests, in their needs, their comforts and conveniences come ahead of ours. That's what it means to serve or submit to one another. Their interests are more important than ours. Their needs are more important than ours. Their comforts, their conveniences, their desires more important than our own. We look after the interests of others more than we do ourselves. Where does that come from? Jesus said, Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man, which is a designation of God in flesh, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Just park on that a minute. The God of the universe in human flesh, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, the God of the whole universe did not come to be served. Then why did he come? But to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. As we'll see in the coming weeks, mutual submission to one another would imply that one is willing to submit to those who have authority, whether it be in the home, in the church, or in society. Now, we have to say this because we're going to be, we're going to be diving into this in the coming few months, actually. This mutual submission does not diminish our submission to other God-ordained roles. God has actually ordained six different authorities in the New Testament. First, there's submission to God. The sovereign king, James 4, 7 says. The fact that Jesus is Lord means that we also submit to him. That's why we should fear him, as we'll see in, in the end of the text. Second, there's submission to the government. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 tells us to submit to the government. Third, there's submission to church leaders, Hebrews 13, 17, 1 Peter 5, 1 Corinthians 16, tell us to submit to our leaders in the church. Fourth, there's submission to, of wives to husbands and of children to their parents. We'll see that in the coming two paragraphs. Fifth, there's submission to, of workers to employers or slaves to masters. We'll see that in chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. And then there's this, mutual submission in the body of Christ. We submit to each other. What does that mean? We serve each other. We treat each other as if they were masters we want to please. That's mutual submission. And can you just for a minute, can we dream a minute? What would, what would our church, what would any church look like if that was our signature? If we put the interests and the conveniences and the desires of others above ourselves, and you're, you're liable to say, well, what if 
I put everyone else's interests above my own. What about my interests? Well, what if everybody else does that too? Then yours are, you're, it's just scratched. This is a call to serve each other in the church. One another. Submission means service. Service means treating others more important than yourself. And all of this means mortifying pride that naturally exists in our heart. So will you obey that participial infinitive, that uh, imperative, that participial command, submitting to one another? I'll have something practical to say about that in a moment. The third application for fulfilling mutual submission between Christians. First, in verse 18, recognize the reason for mutual submission. Second, in verse 21a, obey the command for mutual submission. And thirdly, distinguish the motive. Why do we do this? for mutual submission. Distinguish the motive. And it's in the simple phrase, in the fear of Christ. In the fear of Christ. How important is submission? It's done in Christ's fear, the fear of Christ. I'm going to read you that little phrase in the Greek and tell me what what verse, what word, rather, pops into your mind. An phobo Christu. Phobo, phobias, phobia, fear. Now, we're going to come back to this idea of fear, by the way, which is mistranslated in verse 33, at least in the New American Standard. Nevertheless, let each among you also to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects his phobia, she fears her husband. That sounds awkward. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean to fear Christ? What is, that, that's equally as awkward unless you understand it. Let's first start with this. Living under the fear of God is a foundational part of the Bible. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise it. Excuse me. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. Psalm 111, excuse me, yes, Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. And then the most philosophical book in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe the deep end of the theological pool, concludes the entire book with this. The conclusion, after all has been heard, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Fear God and keep His commandments. That's the conclusion. Fear God and keep His commandments. Have you ever heard of, notice the opposite of fearing God? The opposite of fearing God is the described state of an unbelieving heart. Paul does that. He stitches together several Old Testament passages, and in Romans 3, verse 10, he says, it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. Listen to the, how this crescendos and builds. There is none righteous, not even one. None who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. 
They've all turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throats are an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And all of it ends with this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. No reverence for God. No acknowledging of God. No awareness of God and His greatness. Now, obviously there is a broad and a wide range of meaning and application of the term fear or phobias. From horrified terror to simple respect. It's the context that determines what that means, and the object that determines what that fear means. You may find it interesting that the word and the idea of fearing associated with Godhead is used four times, only four times in the New Testament. Acts 9.31, the early church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria is portrayed as increasing and walking in the fear of the Lord, comfort of the Holy Spirit. Second, as we saw a minute ago in Romans 3.18, Paul writes that the depraved sinfulness of human beings is caused by their lack of the fear of God. Thirdly, in 2 Corinthians 5.11, in, in view of our ultimate accountability and appearance before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says that the fear of the Lord should motivate believers to faithfulness in gospel ministry. And then finally in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul states that believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but instead to cleanse themselves from the defilement of body and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Dr. Honer, he's been our guide and my guide. I think I quote him every week, and I don't think I'm going to stop very time, anytime soon. Such an excellent scholar. He says this The discussion in the present context about fear revolves around the believer who, filled by the Spirit, submits to others out of fear or reverence for Christ. Such fear conveys more than just respect. One could have respect for Christ but not be submissive. On the other hand, it is doubtful that this is a fear comp that's comprised of terror. Consequently, since the word is used in the context of Christ's love that is so amply demonstrated in this letter, it's best to view it as a reverential fear or a reverential respect, a reverence. This quality of fear motivates believers to submit to others in the body of Christ. It's our motive. So it's not the terrorized fear of judgment. I just think of that. I... I grew up in a very strong gospel preaching church that we used to watch, have series where we would watch the rapture movies. Some of you are old enough to remember those, the thief and the knife. They would scare me to death. I remember laying in bed as a 10, 11-year-old and experiencing a thunderstorm and being so afraid that Jesus was coming back and I'm going to be left that I was trembling, sweating, getting up in the middle of the night and running into the bedroom. Is our mom and dad still here? Coming home and no one was there and thinking, I have been left behind. That was a terrorized fear of judgment. 
I don't think that's what's in mind here. What is? It's the amazed awe of knowing that God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. That's what chapter 1, verse 22 tells us. Knowing that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But I think at the most personal level, fearing God, fearing Christ, speaks of the fear of disappointing Him, of grieving the Spirit. Arguably, the best friend of Jesus on this planet was the Apostle John. In fact, they were so close that at that Last Supper we were talking about a moment ago, Jesus would have been at the head of the table. John was laying on his chest in godly, brotherly affection. Very familiar. Peter's actually at one point in the discussion when Jesus says, there's one who's going to betray me. Peter says to John, ask him who it's going to be. He was that close to him, physically and relationally. And yet, that same John, so gloriously close to the Lord, is exiled on Patmos. And the Lord comes and gives him a revelation of his coming. And when he shows up, it's traumatic. John says, Jesus shows up. And in Revelation 1.17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That's the fear of the Lord. But listen to what Jesus says. I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. So we gotta, we got to stitch this together. Be motivated by the fear of Christ. John's afraid of Christ, falls down as a dead man, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. How do you work that out? There is a fear that is a reverential fear that's not a terror. This kind of fear, this is important, still understands Christ's power and his potential but he's also our friend. When I first was getting close to wanting to marry Kim, we had that trip about seven hours from uh, Los Angeles is where her parents lived. So I got invited up, it was during the winter, to uh, spend the weekend with the parents. Um, that was a pretty nerve-wracking moment. You're always nervous and what's this going to be like? Well, my father-in-law owned two 160-pound-plus Rottweilers. One was named Calvin. <laughs> it 
it had snowed, and Kim and the family and I, we were out, and we were just messing around. The dogs were prancing around the snow, and, and uh, we were throwing snowballs at each other. Well, my wife has a good arm. She clocked me pretty well. And so, as any young man in love would do, I was going to chase her and tackle her in the snow. And that's what is godly to do. And so, <laughs> so I took off after her, and the two Rottweilers took off after me. And let's just say that I found out something that day, and that is that my beloved backside is the exact size of Calvin's jaws. <laughs> he grabbed me and threw me to the ground. I thought, this is it. I'm coming to see you, Lord Jesus. My, this precious woman that I'm falling in love with is over with her parents laughing hysterically at me. Well, I was there for a few days then. We went back inside and got warmed up and stuff. And after a day or two, Calvin warmed up to me. In fact, we were sitting downstairs uh, with the family, and he came and put his head on my thigh, and I was petting him, and it was incredible. I'm not comparing God to a dog, but I'll tell you what, the principles are the same. Even though we were now friends, I didn't forget his power, and I didn't forget his potential. You do know that your Savior is the judge of the universe, the king of every king, the Lord above every Lord. And because he is willing to call us friends, doesn't cease being God, we come to him with reverential fear. <laughs> and in grace, he would say, don't be afraid. That motivates us because of our relationship with the Lord to say, who are we in light of who he is? So let me be a servant to everyone around like he was. That Lord Jesus was our servant. He put our needs ahead of his own desires. Not what my will, but yours be done. What a Christ, what a God, what a Savior. Do you still remember, as much as you love him and as much as you enjoy his love for you, do you still remember his power and his potential that he still is the judge and took our punishment on himself? Christians who are walking with Christ in spirit-filled lives have servant hearts. They serve him and they serve, we serve others we love to serve. We want to serve. We seek to serve. We go out of our way to serve. We sacrifice to serve because that's what our Savior did for us. It's the fear of Christ that motivates us. So, one amazingly obvious takeaway. You will never be submissive to others and serve them without intentional deliberate, pursued relationships. Oh, it's so easy with American individualism to come, sit, leave, come, sit, leave, come, sit, leave, come, sit, leave, without getting involved with the people around you. 
Christ has organized his body to function best and to function in its most healthy way when the body is serving itself. Paul uses that illustration in 1 Corinthians 12 and says, the body parts don't ignore each other. I mean, can you imagine getting something in your eye and not trying to get it out? We all know what it's like to have a splinter. We don't ignore that. Your brothers and sisters are body parts, and when they hurt, we serve. When they suffer, we serve. When they need, we, we serve. And I can promise you this. If we do that, that lost and dying world will come around us and say something supernatural is happening there because they love each other. If you've been bought with, by Christ, this is your heart. We can excel still more. If you haven't, we'd love to serve you. We'd love for you to be a brother or a sister and to be a part of this family. Turn from your sins. Receive his forgiveness. Believe the truth of the gospel. And if you want to know what that's about in any deeper sense, our prayer room is going to be open in a moment. We'll be glad to, to share that with you. Let me pray. Father, I'm so convicted by the ways that I have been irritated by opportunities to serve, been frustrated, ignored them. But I'm thankful for your conviction. Will you please make our body aware, 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 and willing to serve other members? In Jesus' name. Amen.